And we are live from the Empire of Lies. It's time for the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines on Truth Tuesday with Gus, guest co-host Jason Goodman. This is The Backstory. Welcome, everyone. This is Rod from Philly, producer of the show. We have a great show planned for you today. In the first hour, we have Karen Hunt coming on to talk about uh, the importance of June 6th. And Karen Hunt is a writer, artist, and kickboxer. And so, so that's what we have in the first hour. And in the second hour, we have Tim Canova, who's a law professor, attorney, and a political activist, and ran against Debbie Wasserman Schultz in 2016 in Southern Florida. And he's going to be talking about the uh, Trump indictment. And you're listening to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. Now, so Jason, I don't know if you follow news, but have you heard about this Trump thing in Miami? I heard something. Yeah, something's going on. You know, I get I get alerts on my phone telling me the news. And so every step of the way, as Trump got closer to the courtroom, I got a new alert. In the Daily News, put out... Uh, he pleaded not guilty, and they put not guilty in capital letters as though it's some shock. I expect Trump to plead not guilty, don't you? Yes, and I also believe that he is not guilty. Yeah, no. And they talked about the people down there. There are some people down there, but they said they weren't that many. Well, uh, Laura, Laura Loomer was there and doing a live stream there was a good crowd. I would say it was comparable to the crowd outside the Trump arraignment in New York. You know, I mean, this is it wasn't like January 6th, obviously, where it was announced way in advance and the president himself said everybody go there and you had the National Mall and all that. These are like, you know, the the like pedestrian mall in front of a federal building and I'm just glad that there wasn't any kind of uh, agitator, provocateur kind of nonsense that can be so common at these things. One news report, I think it was ABC, they said they were the police were anticipating 5,000 to 50,000 Trump fans out there. And how many How many did they get? I think it could have been 5,000. I mean, I wasn't there, but just looking at... It wasn't 50,000. That's fairly safe. 5,000. 5,000 sounds right. And so, you know, it's interesting, but again, no impact. And uh, they were kind of respectful to Trump in that they didn't do uh, a photo today. And they say the photo will not be released to the media. And I think that's BS because, you know, the media likes photos of Trump and there's a few out there. I, I don't think that's his biggest concern. I hope they don't release a photo of me. Yeah, no, exactly. It's like, oh, thank goodness. All this nonsense for seven years, but no photo. Right. He doesn't care, I don't think. That's right. Now, I want to play a few clips, and I'm trying to figure out what order to do this in. I think I'll do it Bannon first and then Grassley, because Bannon makes reference to Grassley and the speech he gave on the Senate floor, which will play for you basically its entirety. But before you do that, Lee, I have a question. These recordings that Grassley is talking about, that is not what Andre Telejenko, you and I did a show with Andre where he was talking about some guy who was in the room with Poroshenko or something recording on his phone. This is different now. I believe so. 
But I actually want to talk to Andre Telzenko about this. I want to say, what do you think of the, all this? Because Andre, I'm sure, knows a lot of stuff about the subject. Well, good news. I've invited him to join us on Saturday on the backstory, and he's checking his schedule. Well, that, that'd be great. So uh, let's hear let's hear Bannon first as a kind of setup, because the Grassley thing, I'll say this, and I, I say this uh, I, again as a guy with brain damage. So Grassley, so I'm not being unfair when I say this, but Grassley, I find somewhat difficult to listen to. Well, he's he's definitely aging. Yeah, I mean, when you see him now, he is in a wheelchair much of the time. He is he is getting up there in the years. I really do like Chuck Grassley and his uh, energy and what he stands for. He reminds me, and I don't mean this to be mean at all. I like him, but I, he reminds me of the guy from Up. The, the guy from what? Old man puts the balloons on his house and floats away. He reminds me of that that movie. That guy. Was the late Ed Asner, who just recently passed away. Yeah, right. Also, by the way, in death news, apropos nothing, writer Cormac McCarthy is dead, who wrote No Country for Old Men. Also, yeah, Treat Williams, that was kind of weird. There's something involving a motorcycle accident or something. Crash, yeah, bad crash. Gotta be careful. And at 81. No, 71 for Treat Williams, 71. So I, I misheard that. Be careful out there on the motorcycle. And uh, the other thing I'll mention, it, it's kind of death-related, sort of, but Pat Sajak, he's not dead, but he's leaving Wheel of Fortune. You heard that, right? Uh, I saw a picture of him yesterday. I was thinking, how old is this guy? He looks better than me. But he, he's in his 70s. And uh, Andrew Breitbart and I, Andrew saw Pat Sajak at like the park or something. And had and and he and I used to talk about Vanna White all the time. And don't get stop snickering, not for any creepy reason. We both used to see Vanna White at work. Oh right, right. We both used to deliver pizza for a guy named George San Pedro, who had a restaurant called Santa Pedro's, and Vanna White was his girlfriend. Wow. I I cook for Vanna White all the time. Now wait a minute. Wait a minute. What what's the timeline here you're working with andrew breitbart at a pizza place this was like the 80s this was when i first moved out to california i was like 19 do you know what that restaurant was by the way you know that area pretty well it was by cbs in studio city uh-huh you yeah. know that that cbs studio there yeah yeah i've been on the lot to see you and andrew breitbart and i worked there at santa pedro's i worked in the valley and Andrew worked on the West Side in like the early 90s. Call it early, call it 91, okay? And we found out that the week before he died because we were shocked to find out that we had both worked at the same restaurant. Both had worked there at different times. Got it. And one in the Valley and one on the West Side. But I mentioned that I, I, I worked for, I used to cook for Vanna White. When he said he'd seen Pat Sajak, I said, I used to cook with Vanna White. And he said, George San and Pedro. Because <laughs> who the hell knows that, right? Right, right, right. And Andrew said, I used to work for San and Pedro's. There you go. So there we go. Do you know how else used to deliver pizza, by the way? Tucker Carlson. Oh, really? Again, apropos nothing. But, I, you know, 
Andrew and I used to talk about it on a bad news day, like when the New York Times was attacking him or whatever. He'd be like, delivering pizza was nice. Maybe I'll go do that again. Yeah. Well, it was. You you could drive around, listen to music. Most of it's listening to music in the car. Okay? And then making change is so easy. You could use your own car. You could get in an accident. You pay for the gas and everything. Yeah, but, but I prefer my own car because it's got my stereo and, you know, and so on. But let's listen to this Chuck Grassley clip. Uh, uh, maybe let's listen to Bannon clip first to set up the Chuck Grassley clip. Bannon first, hit it, please, Andre. Hit it. Foreign national allegedly has audio recordings. Seventeen of the fifteen audio between him and Hunter, and two audio recordings between him and then VP Joe Biden. Kept it as an insurance policy. From Grassley, who knows how to run an investigation. Mike Davis used to work for him. We're trying to track down Mike for the 6 o'clock. We will play this floor speech. Now you know the timing of this. This is why you have the timing of this. This is, And this is why we're not going to spend a lot of time going through every perturbation, because it doesn't matter. It just matters you stand with President Trump now, and we're going on offense. Okay? We're being fed stuff all the time from what's happening on Capitol Hill. And I'm telling you, there's high crime. You know, so I agree with Bannon in that, you know, I'm not a huge Trump fan, but I do think people really do need to be aware of what's going on. Trump is a proxy. Do you agree? I absolutely agree. I It sickens me. I, I agree with what you just said. It doesn't matter what you think of Donald Trump the man. It doesn't matter what you think of Donald Trump's presidency. Anyone who can look at the double standard the unequal application of justice and not be disgusted, let alone revel in it, is not American. Right. And th there is a crime being diverted from here. And what Grassley's talking about, it's, it's very obvious that do you think, have any doubt, Jason, any doubt at all that Biden was bribed and receiving money for doing foreign policy. He's admittedly, he sat in the Council on Foreign Relations and told them that he went there and said, if you do not fire this prosecutor, who he didn't mention was investigating his son, you're not going to get this billion dollar loan guarantee. And then sure enough, after he pressured them like a mafia don, they fired the guy. So that is exactly right there in his own admission, pay for play. They've got the bank receipts. They started a war in Ukraine. I mean, this is one of the most despicable acts ever carried out by an individual, let alone a president of the United States. Anyone can look this up if there's any doubt about it, but look it up if you're not sure. But he was so desperate to replace that prosecutor that they replaced him with a guy who was unqualified to be a prosecutor. The replacement, you, you know, he was not a lawyer. Did you know that, Jason? I didn't know that. No, I saw the picture of the guy, but I don't really know who he is. They had to pass a special law in order to put that guy in office because up until then, you had to have legal experience. Wacky. Makes sense. Yeah, right. It's like, why don't they get some pilots who don't know how to fly planes? <laughs> right. Now, so you heard Bannon mention the Grassley speech. Let's hear the speech. And you'll hear at towards the end of this, Grassley's talking about how 
there are supposedly audio recordings of Joe and Hunter Biden taken by this oligarch in in, uh, Ukraine. So you'll hear that mentioned. That was what Bannon was referencing, okay? It's Lobchesky, right? That's the guy. To my colleagues about the Biden administration and the FBI playing games with the American people by hiding the FBI-generated 1023 document from Congress and the American people. Director Ray was going to be held in contempt for refusing to produce the 1023 that I told Chairman Comer about. And I think I had that first conversation with Chairman Comer about three weeks ago. Then instead of contempt, the FBI committed to showing the 1023 and related documents to the whole Congress. By the way, I thank uh, Chairman Comer for his cooperation with me and how he's pursued this issue, because we know a heck of a lot more now than if he hadn't been involved in this whole effort. So the FBI showed, after the FBI committed to showing this document, they showed, but it didn't provide possession of the 1023 to the House Oversight Committee last week. And by the way, 1023 is unclassified. So why shouldn't the entire country know about what's in this 1023? As the public knows, that 1023 involves an alleged bribery scheme between then Vice President Biden, Hunter Biden, and a foreign national. The same allegations that Chairman Comer and I made public on May the 3rd of this year. And on the very same day that the FBI provided a redacted version of the 1023 to the House Oversight Committee, the Justice Department then announced that former President Trump had been indicted and charged with 37 crimes related to his alleged mishandling of classified records. Attorney General Garland signed off on prosecuting Trump for conduct similar to what Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton engaged in. Two standards of justice in this country will turn our constitutional republic upside down. Thanks to the political infections within the Biden Justice Department and the FBI, we were well along the road for that to happen. This senator will do all that he can to fight political infection, the Department of Justice and the FBI. And you fight it, then, by bringing transparency to what this government does. The public's business ought to be public. Transparency brings accountability. With respect to the 1023 shown to that House Oversight Committee, from what I've been told by folks who've reviewed it, it's filled with redactions. Now, the document that Comer and I read had maybe two or three half-inch redactions, not whole sentences redacted, as I'm told the document in the skiff is. 
So, Director Ray placed redactions on a document that's already unclassified. As I've said before, unclassified. More than that, the FBI made Congress review a redacted, unclassified document in a classified facility. That goes to show you the disrespect that the FBI has for Congress. On a previous time on this Senate floor, I think I told my fellow senators that what's so unusual about an unclassified document being given to the public when, I think it was May the 18th of this year, there was leaked to the New York Times a classified document and even the name of a confidential human source. So, we're kind of in a strange situation here. Classified document can be leaked to the New York Times, but a non-classified document can't be made public to 300 million Americans if they're interested in reading it. Now, accordingly, Congress still lacks a full and complete picture with respect to what that document really says. That's why it's important that the document be made public without unnecessary redactions for the American people to see. Can you believe redacting an unclassified document? So now, let me assist for the purposes of more transparency on this subject. The 1023 produced to the House Committee's redacted reference that the foreign national who allegedly bribed Joe and Hunter Biden now, so with them. 17 such recordings. According to the 1023, the foreign national possesses 15 audio recordings of phone calls between him and Hunter Biden. According to the 1023, the foreign national possesses two audio recordings of phone calls between him and then Vice President Joe Biden. These recordings were allegedly kept as a sort of insurance policy for the foreign national in case that he got into a tight spot. The 1023 also indicates that then Vice President Joe Biden may have been involved in Burisma employing Hunter Biden. Based on the facts known to the Congress and the public, it's clear that the Justice Department, the FBI, haven't nearly had the same laser focus on the Biden family. Special Counsel Jack Smith has used a recording against former President Trump. Well, what is U.S. Attorney Weiss doing with respect to these alleged Joe and Hunter Biden That's recordings that are apparently relevant to the high-stakes bribery scheme. Full and complete 1023 is critical for the American people to know and understand the true nature of the document and to hold the Justice Department and the FBI accountable. Now, so what do you think of that, Jason? What are your comments? 
based on just hearing Grassley talk there? Well, I, I, I have a lot of questions. First of all, how can the FBI just redact? If it's an unclassified document, I, I just don't understand. How do they redact it? How can they force Congress to come to a skiff? I have separately heard, I don't remember if it was Chuck Grassley or Ron Johnson, but when both of them were testifying in front of the House Weaponization Committee, they spoke about an incident where the FBI called, I think he just mentioned it right there, where the FBI called them over to a skiff. Then the FBI released the classified information, and they wanted to investigate the two of them, saying, ooh, somebody released classified information. So, I mean, the FBI, in my view, Lee, is a criminal organization, and so many, at least of the executives for sure, should they're the ones who should be being arraigned. You know, Anna Paulina Luna just introduced some resolution to fine Adam Schiff. Let me stop you for one second. Let me ask you a question. From my understanding of what Grassley was saying, I think he was saying that Chris Ray personally rejected something that had already been rejected. So before he showed it to Grassley and Comer, Ray himself personally redacted it. Did you get that? I I didn't quite pick that up, but I bet there was something redacted beyond what they had seen. I mean, it just it sounds like the FBI is playing a game. And he said that the FBI is playing games. I mean, what is this? Why don't they just fire them? Doesn't the FBI have the, the other thing that occurs to me, Jason, is there's so much evidence here that we're not talking about because, you know, what was on those phone calls? We're just having to acknowledge the existence of them is pulling teeth, right? But when we hear the phone calls, what is on the phone calls is actually the meat of the story. Does that make sense? Well, not only that, Lee, first of all, I don't understand why he has these recordings and hasn't released them. But secondarily, I think you might know what I'm about to say. My mind immediately goes to, you know, Ukraine is tricky and technologically sophisticated. And it's been at least six months, if not longer, that you have been playing with artificial intelligence, voice modeling software, or whatever we call it. How do we know these are authentic? Play the phone calls. I want, I'm not doubting that Joe Biden received a bribe, but talking about all this evidence, and we have this, and I want to see it. I want to hear it. Let's see the evidence. Well, I assume someone, there, some, when this whistleblower See, I'm a little confused what this document is and why the whistleblower, I, I believe he's given it to Comey and, sorry, to Comer. I believe he gave it to Comer and Grassley. Is that right? I think so. And is it is it that he's a whistleblower or an informant? I mean, that's the thing. These terms get thrown around. We don't know exactly what kind of position this person holds. Is well, like I'm going to use whistleblower here. As, as in a person who filed a whistleblower complaint, not a general, you know, like tr truth teller, but someone who filed a whistleblower complaint. And I think when you do that, you put so certain stuff under penalty of perjury, for instance. So it's, I, I think that person is a formal whistleblower, but I'm not 100% sure because this whole thing is so confusing. And they made it confusing on purpose. By design. The FBI right. mainly. Do you agree? They love that. I, I do agree. And I think that's their, 
Number one way to do it, because then when you get in court and start explaining what they did, the judge says, well, this is a conspiracy theory. No, it isn't, because here's evidence that each of the things that I'm telling you happened. Now, speaking of which, there's another clip. This is Tucker Carlson talking about the Epstein story. And I, I think I thought it was a good clip. And he, he states a number of things that are fairly obvious, but no one in the media talks about, such as, well, you'll hear it. So let's play Tucker Carlson talking about Jeff Epstein. Hit it. He was murdered in the special housing unit of federal lockup in Manhattan. How so, do we know he was murdered? Oh, well, look into it, dude. We did a whole segment on it on my show. Nobody cared. Um, I'm going to watch it after. You should. It's un- it's beyond belief. And I'm very skeptical of any kind of conspiracy theory or whatever. Why don't more people go after this, though? We know that he was murdered because, well, for one thing, I, a friend of mine is one of the people who last talked to him on the phone the day he was killed. And he had a expectation of a bail hearing in two days. He thought he was getting out. He was not despondent at all. I talked to his lawyer, told me the same. They moved someone out of his cell. They put two people, one of whom was not even a full-time prison guard, on duty. None of the cameras trained on the cell worked. They were all out of it that night. They locked the front of the special housing unit that had eight cells in it, but then they opened all the cells inside. So who was it? So I asked a really simple question, the Bureau of Prisons. Who were the other? So there are eight cells, 16 minus his cell because he was alone. So that means there are 14 other inmates there that night. What are their names? Where'd they go? Some of them are transferred out right after. Who were these people? Can't tell you that. Really? You can't tell me that? Well, on the basis of what? Because some inmate at a federal prison's privacy concerns like Trump telling what are you even talking about? Meanwhile, the attorney general of the United States under Trump, Bill Barr, issues a statement being like, no, you know, it's totally Bill Barr lied. There's no question that Bill Barr well, he clearly suspected Epstein was murdered, but stopped the investigation into it. I went and read Bill Barr's book in which he explains all this. And it's like, I have no idea why the attorney general of the United States would be lying about this. But there's literally no question that he did. I know him. So we, Bill Barr is a super nice guy. We reach out to Bill Barr like, hey, why don't you come on and explain why you lied about Jeffrey Epstein's death? Oh, no. So that's very interesting to Well, so he says, we know that he was murdered. No, we don't. How do you know that? Unless you've got some photos we haven't seen, some DNA evidence and somebody admitting. I saw a photo of someone on a gurney being brought into Manhattan Presbyterian who the profile of that dead person's nose looks nothing at all like the nose on Jeffrey Epstein's face. How do we know he was murdered? How do we know he wasn't exfiltrated from that prison and this is a Noam Chomsky roundup where they want you to debate the broken cameras and the crazy trial of the guards and the open cells. And I'll talk about that all you want, but you're not going to talk about where Epstein went. I, I don't think Tucker Carlson has that right. Let's talk about that after, because Karen Hunt is online. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk to Karen here on The Backstory. We are back on the backstory and on the radio 
on 105.5 FM AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Joining us now, great conversation, great friend of the show, the writer, Karen Hunt. Hey, Karen, how are you doing? Hey, Lee, I'm doing great. Nice to talk to you once again. So we're on with Jason Goodman today. And uh, belated happy birthday, Karen. (laughs) Thank you. 21, congratulations. (laughs) <laughs> 21 again. <laughs> so you, uh, the re- reason I'm saying that, you recently wrote a, a column about thoughts on your birthday, right? Yep, I sure did. And and what were your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, again, you wrote a whole piece. So the highlights. Well, I started out with uh, how, you know, my birthday is a pretty... Um, um, controversial day, not an unusual day. I guess that not surprising that I turned out the way I am. Um, it was the, you know, the it's the anniversary on my birthday always of the Six Day War, uh, and my family actually um, literally escaped out of Egypt when I was ten years old, right before the Six Day War. I, I celebrated my seventh, uh, my I'm um, my my 11th birthday in Ankara, Turkey, where we just gotten out of, uh, over, escaped over the mountains of Syria into, into Turkey, like 36 hours before the border closed. And then, uh, you know, it's also the uh, anniversary of D-Day as well and, and some other things. And so it was just, I, you know, I started, I always sort of reflect on my birthday about things like this. And, um, and I always was told by my father to, um, uh, to really, you know, stand up and speak out and never be afraid. In fact, I'm like, I'm six feet tall. <laughs> I grew to be six feet tall. And he always said, don't slouch, stand up straight. You can't, you're not going to, it actually draws more attention to the fact that you're tall. I eventually ended up liking that I was tall, but you know, things like that. So I always re- reflect on things like that on my birthday. So that was basically, um, you know, the, the start of it. And then I sort of went into sort of uh, what's happening now and what's happening with our children and how we need to start protecting our children, things like that. So that was basically uh, what got me inspired to write that piece. You know, it's funny because my teaching as a child of the Six-Day War and my understanding of it now are very different, you know. As an American, I'm a pretty secular Jew, but in Hebrew school they told us, oh, you know, Israel came to be and then all these terrible Arab nations attacked it. But they left out the whole part about, like, you know, the United States, England, and France just being like, hey, all you Arab nations, we're putting this here. And they couldn't have been happy about that. (laughs) So it's a complicated story that I got one side of. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going into the political. Obviously, there's, you know, there's powers that be above us that play these games. So, you know, my, my reflection was just my experience of. Um, you know, firsthand experience of being in Cairo, surrounded by guns with Nasser's uh, voice screaming over um, loudspeakers, um, you know, death to Americans, you know, uh, the, or the, the um, tool of America, you know, Israel and death to all Americans. And we're driving around and, and, and we were like, 
we didn't know what was going on. We just happened to arrive there. There were no, virtually no other tourists there. And we were driving around in a big red VW van with a big USA sticker on the back of it. You know? but, but I will tell you something that we drove then down to, um, we, we left Cairo and drove down to Luxor. And that was a whole different experience. And that was incredible. We, um, there were no other, we, I think we, and back then, that, this was 1967. So there was like, we saw one car going the other way. <laughs> We're driving and I had a crazy father who wanted to do all these adventures. So we kept going. But um, in Luxor, it was a very different experience. And, and I never forgot that. And I actually went back and lived there. I was there during the pandemic. I was living in Luxor for three years because I left it there. So, you know, life is complex. It's not just, and just because, you know, I think just because I had that personal experience, I wanted to understand more of, you know, what it really meant to live in, in that part of the world. And so that's what I did. So let me ask you a question. I'm sure no one asked you because it's weird and shallow, but what's your favorite? You said you were in Egypt when you were 11, right? What's your favorite? Oh, well, I was 10, right before my 11th birthday. Okay. Yeah. yeah right. Uh, forgive me. So what's your favorite food rem- memory? Because I, I assume being a child over over in an exotic land, you ate some neat stuff. What's your favorite food memory? I we were in so many different countries. We were traveling all over because my father was a writer and he wanted to gain all these inspirations for his writing. So there, what I remember about there was. Um, we went to one super nice restaurant in Cairo and had all, I don't remember what the food was because I don't, I just don't remember, but it was very, it was very tasty. I know that, that they, they make very good uh, when I lived in Luxor, um, they make very, very good like barbecue chicken and it's all fresh. All the food was fresh and it was really wonderful to eat. We couldn't drink the water. So back when I was 10, we had to, we were, I remember sometimes brushing our teeth, if you can believe it, with Coca-Cola um, because we were, we, there was no not like now there was no bottled water or things like that. So we had to be very careful, but I loved the bread, the bread, this wonderful, um, you know, fresh baked bread. And there, I loved that pretty much. It was a new experience for me because in the United States, we just had this packaged bread. And so in the, in, um, in those countries like in Morocco and in Egypt, I particularly remember how delicious the bread tasted and and, French bread too in, in France. So those, the French bread in France and the bread in uh, in uh, Egypt, um, this flat bread, you know, but but these big big long pieces of flat bread uh, were really delicious. Well, that's a great story, Karen. And you also wrote in that you talked about protecting children, and you talked about living in the San Fernando Valley in California. And I also lived there. Jason, did you know Karen's li- lived in the valley? Well, that's the three of us then. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Now, Sherman Oaks. And you said something in that essay that I thought was completely apropos about child rearing, but also true about the valley. It's a heroin capital. My son went to school. We're living in Burbank. And Burbank, California is a very nice kind of middle class, upper middle class, working people community. But a lot of his friends in high school in Burbank were heroin addicts at like 16. Holy cow. I had no idea. Right. I lived in Burbank for a while. I worked in Burbank. And you wouldn't think of heroin 
as a Burbank thing, right? No, no. It's like offices and studios and stuff. But it was it was shocking to me. At, at the time, I kind of th- thought it was basically a sort of blandness yielded the heroin interest for people. In other words, it's so middle class, they want something to alleviate the boredom or something. What do you think, Aaron? I think more that it's a, it's a concerted effort. I can see it as it's happening now, looking back, to either addict our children legally or illegally to drugs. I mean, I, I see this as something that the government has actually done. And I've written quite a number of pieces about this. Um, uh, my my children mainly grew up, they went to Calabasas High School, which is, you know, the world land of the Kardashians and all of that. <laughs> and there's a place called the, the Commons. And, it, you know, it looks very beautiful and pristine. Like, it's illegal. It was one of the first places where it's illegal to smoke in public. But it's total hypocrisy. Go behind the Commons, this beautiful, you know, uh, very wealthy, uh, frou-frou place where all the rich people go, to, you know, when they come out of their mansions. And, um, and you will find children uh, behind their, you know, uh, becoming addicted to these types of drugs. It's as much predominant in every aspect of the valley and i think it's a kind of a thing where it's where these two worlds there's these two worlds sort of going along right next to one another and all you need to do is just take a little step you know your child just needs to take a little step you know wherever you want to say to the left or the right, whatever. And they and they find themselves falling into this whole other dark world. And I wrote another piece um, all about uh, the, the trap houses in the valley and these houses, these connections of houses in, in the valley where they lure kids into them and they become addicted to drugs. There's this whole underbelly uh, in the valley and which which sort of reflects, I think, in a lot of ways what's happened what what happened throughout the whole United States. Remember that it, within the school system, they created this whole thing for, you know, for these poor children, attention deficit children who they then put on Ritalin. I interviewed children who had been put on Ritalin when they I mean, I'm sorry, interviewed young adults, maybe, you know, 18, 20 years old, who they found out that they'd literally been put on, um, uh, you know, like cocaine or something when they were a child by the, by the, um, by the experts. And they'd been put on these drugs by their parents. And I think this is a lot of the reason also why parents were like, people are so surprised. How could parents have allowed their children to be given this, these experimental, you know, COVID vaccines? Well, this is the reason because we've been conditioned to do this for such a long time and all a kid has to do anywhere is to go down to their local drugstore or whatever and there's somebody who will offer them drugs i don't care what the neighborhood is there are ways to, to find those drugs and so what this also did what the the streets became so dangerous that they could then capture children within these this virtual world which is also what i talk about in this essay and, and with people you know parents and everyone believing that it's far safer for them to be inside this you know this virtual prison rather than in in the real world um so you know that that's one of the one of the 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 associations that i make with that essay what what did the ritalin do to these children when they became adults 
Well, when they're children, and I knew many children who were on this Ritalin, um, I talked to uh, like a few of them and some of my kids' friends, my son's friends, and they, they, it, it made them, so they didn't feel, just in a fog, in a haze when they were children, you know? And then the, 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 um, the justification for giving it, that what these experts would say is like, well, if you don't give this to your children, they're going to self-medicate when they get older. Well, these children who were on Ritalin went on to do other, you know, other types of drugs um, when they got older because they were so used to taking their, their pill. You also would see children, you know, almost every parent was on some type of medication, you know, given to them by a, by their, you know, psychiatrist or whatever. And so the kids take the medication out of the cabinet. They, they see these, these drugs all the time. It's just a part of their daily, their, their daily life. You know, it, it's, it's the most natural thing in the world to take a drug in our society, basically. Now, the other thing we've talked about before, and you, you talk about it in this essay, is the program you worked with incarcerated youth. Talk about that. In the mid, uh, in like 1996, I, well, I, I as a I was a children's book author. I've published like had published nineteen children's books, which I wrote and illustrated. And I would go into schools and talk to youth about um, you know get them excited about expressing themselves. And I remember that in one school, this girl read, got up to read her piece, which was if you had fifteen minutes to stand in front of the entire world, what would you say to make everybody listen? And she started talking about a sale at her favorite store, and let's all buy shoes and blah 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 blah. And it was quite horrific. And when she <laughs> Her, realized the rest of the class was snickering at her. She kind of tacked on at the end. Oh, and there are people starving in the world, so you know, like you know, we should save them. <laughs> and oh. it really, really <laughs> discouraging to me. And so I went into juvenile hall, and it's a whole big story. And I've been writing about it because it's an incredible story. But I got in there uh, into Central Juvenile Hall, which is one of the oldest juvenile halls in the country, and convinced the principal, a wonderful guy. Um, uh, Dr. McCoy to allow me to start working with these youth. And I started working with girls in the girls' school. It was like not that many girls there, but um, there were this, you know, maybe 40 girls. And they all were housed in this unit called Omega Unit <laughs> in the far end of the com- complex. And I, and I went in there and the only girls that I, that I worked with were called high-risk offenders there because they were there for the longest period of time. And so I could work with them over time as creative writing, doing creative writing. And these are girls that were facing life sentences, life sentences. I had a 14 year old girl who was facing a life sentence for serious crimes. She actually ended up spending 25 years in prison. And when she finally was able to get out because they changed the laws, I, I kept in contact with these people, you know, over these years. She committed suicide before she got out. She was too afraid to go back into the real world. But um, I had a very, uh, yeah, developed a, so so this, you know, this experience of these youth that were considered to be monsters and Biden and Hillary Clinton, you know, these were people that that pushed this sort of uh, this um, vision of who these young people were. Um, super predators, them, right? Super predators, exactly. I sat with them face to face, looked into their eyes. They started telling their stories, and these youth that were, you know, enemies on the street just by living in one neighborhood or the other. I always had like one white girl, one Asian American girl, maybe, and then you know, black girls, uh, Hispanic girls, and um, and they would sit there all kind of like enemies, you know. But as they started telling their stories. 
they started understanding what, what brought them together instead of what separated them. And they became friends. It was a beautiful experience. And I look at that and I look at what they're doing now. You know, it, it goes against all reason to separate children children and you know by telling you know black youth you need to have this space you know white youth you need to be over here you know this is done purposely to divide us because there is no reasonable explanation if you want to bring people together you bring you 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 learn what you have in common which is underneath all of us whatever our exterior is you know we all have the same hopes and fears and dreams and everything and there's a beautiful story of one girl, Sylvia Sanchez, uh, 16 years old, facing a life sentence for a crime committed by her older abusive boyfriend. We became very good friends. I went to f- uh, her trial, took 45 pages of notes, stood up in her defense, and she was sentenced on her birthday. Uh, the judge sentenced her to um, uh, not a life sentence without parole, but with the possibility of parole, which he shouldn't even have done, and said now, and turned to her and said, now you thank me. And she had to thank him for giving her um, 25 years to life sentence. And we maintained a friendship over all those years. And she actually got out on the day that Trump became president. She got out of prison. And, you know, we're friends to this day. So there's a lot I could talk about with that. But um, that all obviously, you know, affected me. And um, on my 50th birthday, I was, you know, the, the how worlds collide. I was at a part, I was at a wedding in Calabasas at a big house, big mansion. And I got a call from a mother. She's a suffering, a heroin addict saying, you know, that this young man that I knew, because I knew all these youth, they, they would, I knew this whole world, you know, was in her home. This was in Sherman Oaks, actually. And, um, and he was seven stab wounds and he was going to die you know, and he did, was refusing to go to the hospital because he was on parole. And so I left that party, changed my clothes, and went to that home to try and convince and did. The only way I got him to go to the hospital was he passed out and we got him in the car and took him to the hospital. And, you know, his life was saved. So those are the kind of things that, that, I, that I was dealing with things like that. And um, seeing, you know, that, you know, having compassion and understanding for people, you know, not just writing people off. I, I learned, I never do that because you don't know anyone, you know, just by, you, you don't know them. You don't know what people are suffering and dealing with. You're a remarkable person. A lot of people would not want to go anywhere near some of the people that you're describing. I, I think I would not. Yeah, I've, you know, what's funny is I've dealt with both worlds. I, I created a whole nonprofit, uh, Inside Out Writers, and I had this board of directors, you know, with it's it's there today. Uh, uh, and I got, you know, the contracts that kept the organization going. And I stood in front of that board and I walked out. The, the board took over, you know, and um, so, and I can not relate it to that. I'm not trying to say anything, you know, I, <laughs> but um, I... I'll trust a gangster in some ways on the street more than I'll trust those, uh, you know, those corporate types um, in, in, you know, so, so I saw both sides of both worlds. Yeah. And I got friends to this day who, you know, have my back that, um, that I trust more than I would trust those people, you know? And Karen, tell people again, where they can find your writing. So, uh, you know. Um, so you can find me on Substack. I write about all different kinds of uh, things, um, it, current issues, the, the, the issues that we're facing today. It's at khmezek, M-E-Z-E-K, dot substack, dot com, khmezek, 
www.breakfree.substack.com or you can look up Break Free with Karen Hunt. So we have to ask your opinion today because it's Trump Day. You know, Tuesday is Trump Day. So what do you think of the indictment of Donald Trump, Karen? You know, I kind of, I've written a few things about Donald Trump uh, and I think it's a, it's a, whether you think Trump is guilty or not guilty or whether you think he deserves this or not is the point is that we do not have a just society. We have a society where clearly this country voices are being silenced. And my big thing is uh, freedom, you know, free freedom to speak. I relate what's happening to Trump to what happened to what happened to, to Tucker Carlson. I wrote a piece about that. And, um, you know, people don't understand how could they have fired, you know, fired and actually he's not fired. They're silencing him. They're trying to make it so he cannot speak. You know, that, that was the whole point of it. And how can they do this when he brought in so much money? Because there's something more, more higher. There's a higher order than money. You know, the, the people at the top, they don't, they can print money. They can make anything happen. Um, think a uh, Larry Fink, he made money off of, uh, off of the firing of Tucker and that, and that whole thing, you know, so, so there's a whole other, you know, higher hierarchy that benefits from all of this. And we're here, you know, arguing about, and in the meantime, you know, voices are being silenced. And I, I just believe that that right there is the most dangerous thing that is happening because if, if, if we cannot have a conversation about uh, about um, opposing view viewpoints. Um, why why is that? What is it that is so dangerous about uh, about you know? I, I always say like conspiracy. You know, oh my god, conspiracy theories. How boring the world would be without conspiracy theories. <laughs> you know, just imagine if we didn't have things to you know talk about and speculate and you know I mean and creatively you know make fun of or whatever you know we we need this and karen you raise an interesting point donald trump it cannot be said he's a good problem solver he's not a solver but he brings up a lot of problems right he's a good bringer upper identifies the problem but that's that's not worthless it's not worthless though you got to identify the problem and not everybody can do that and then find the right people to resolve it. It could be useful. I, I'm saying, I, I'm, I'm complimenting him, actually. I'm saying he's very good at exposing, but not so good at solving. How do you solve, but how does one solve this? You know, how, I, I mean, at every turn, I have to say, at, you know, I, I have some admiration because at every, he was, bombarded he's been bombarded and bombarded and bombarded and you have to compare you know i mean certainly look biden had had the same kind of things you know he had all these boxes in the garage with his car i mean and you there's clearly uh not a just system here and um but but i mean you know, Trump still kept on going. He just he just keeps on going. So I have to have admiration for that. And I remember when he first came on the scene, um, and he was just talking, like you know, just saying stuff. And I have to admit, I found that refreshing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> after all the, you know, it's just the 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 stale. Um, 
you know, fearful way that politicians are of making sure that they adhere to the script and, and all of that. So there was something about that that, and I think that that really showed up, you know, it, it made a, a sort of a spark igniting people. The other thing is that about Trump is that, you know, I remember like, you know, living in Los Angeles, there was all this thing about, oh, those flyover states and all those people. And they don't really understand why all those people turned to Trump. They don't get it. And they just write. And the problem is, is that they write off with disdain the common people. You know, these are the aristocrats. You know, we have that kind of society. So anyway, there, there's a lot of things that issues there that, that I think people don't get. No, what what say you, Jason? Because I think you're right on, Karen. I think that it's a, a form of a lower class elitism. Basically, they may not be as rich as the people in the hills, but they are at least better than them. They think to themselves. What, what say you, Jason? I mean, you know, I think that uh, the country is off a cliff. The fact that there there is no justice. We've got a, a president who's being investigated for receiving bribes where the evidence and the circumstances are so obvious, but yet nothing's being investigated. And then you contrast that with a president who everything they've investigated him for for six years was totally made up in terms of Russia hacking the election or the emails or whatever. No evidence has ever been presented that that happened yet. For some reason, the, the scariest aspect of it to me is the incredibly large percentage of people all around us who we presume are normal fellow citizens who fell for such obvious lies and believe it. It's dangerous and scary. And what's really crazy is that they still believe it. No matter what evidence, they still believe it. They will not stop believing. That's the crazy thing. And Karen, we're out of time, but great conversation as usual. Thanks for the conversation, Karen Hunt. And let's take a short break and we'll be back with more on The Backstory. We are back for the second hour on a Truth Tuesday edition of the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines with guest co-host Jason Goodman. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Bench. Welcome, everyone. This is Rod from Philly, producer of the show. We just had a great first hour with Karen, with writer Karen Hunt. And here in the second hour, we have Tim Canova, political activist, former congressional candidate and law professor in in South Florida. And we're going to be talking about the Trump indictment and Trump turning himself in in South Florida. You're listening to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. So, Jason, any thoughts about the conversation with Karen? That's the first time I've spoken with her. I find her to be a remarkable person. Uh, the things that she's described that she did. And that is the type of person who, you know, when people want to defund the police and they say, well, just send, you know, some psychologist or whatever they recommend. I I have a feeling she probably could help rehabilitate problematic people. I mean, I'm amazed by that sort of approach. I don't think that's 
something that I could do, but uh, she deserves a lot of praise. One thing unrelatedly. Let me tell you this, Jason. We talked about her, 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 her birthday and the recent essay. Do you know how old she is? Because she mentions it in, in that essay. Do you know how old Karen is? Well, the, it must be. I mean, she was 11. The That six-day war was like 1967. So I don't know. Maybe how old is that, 70? She's 67 years old. Yeah. Now, just talking to her, again, you know, it's hard for me because I'm in, I'm not 60, but it's in sight, right? A couple of years off. And so 67, I'm thinking that's old, but I'm thinking that's about my age, right? Do you find yourself doing that lately, Jason, as you see people? Not that old, yeah. Yeah, because I also think about my parents and the age that they're at, and I'm like, well, gee, yeah, that used to seem super old. <laughs> Time is a weird thing, as is perspective. Again, I, you know, I, you know, I just think she's amazing sounding for 67 as well. Yeah, that's an inspirational person right there, the things that she was saying. Speaking with her and listening to her speak it makes me feel like I need to work harder on being more generous and a better person myself. I, I was pleased to meet her. Thank you for having her on the show, Lee. But, you know, thanks to Bud Light, she does have something that you can achieve, Jason. Perhaps with high heels, you too can be a six-foot-tall woman. <laughs> I'm not even six feet tall, so neither of those things seem physically possible. But let me share something with you, Lee, because there's breaking news here coming from Laura's Twitter feed outside the court a federal court there in Miami, uh, when Trump left after the arraignment, a guy in a prison uniform jumped in front of the presidential motorcade and got decked and dragged to jail by the cops. And then Trump went to a diner and bought everybody lunch or something. Those two events are not related, I, I take it. Like, they didn't beat up the guy, and then Trump said, okay, I'll buy everyone lunch since that guy got beat up. Yeah, and then separately, there's an article on Daily Caller saying that Joe Biden is going to send depleted uranium munitions to Ukraine. He's got to be removed immediately. He's going to get us all killed. Killed in a very expensive way as well. You know, if you're going to have someone kill you, do it cheap, I say. I don't really mind about the bill. That's somebody else's problem. I just would rather not be getting involved in stupid fights created by Joe Biden. Now, speaking of stupid fights... We were playing a clip, Tucker Carlson talking about Epstein before the break, before we interviewed Karen. And actually, Andre, I'm going to want to play a clip again. So let's play that clip again, because I don't think it's too long. And there's, I, I don't think I remember it all. So let's play it again. This Tucker Carlson talking about the Epstein situation. Hit it. He was murdered in the special housing unit of federal lockup in Manhattan. How so, do we know he was murdered? Oh, well, look into it, dude. We did a whole segment on it on my show. Nobody cared. Um, I'm going to watch it after. You should. It's, it's beyond belief. And I'm very skeptical of any kind of conspiracy theory or whatever. Why don't more people go after this, though? We know that he was murdered because, well, for one thing, I, a friend of mine is one of the people who last talked to him on the phone the day he was killed. And he had a expectation of a bail hearing in two days. He thought he was getting out. He was not despondent at all. I talked to his lawyer, told me the same. They moved someone out of his cell. 
they put two people, one of whom was not even a full-time prison guard, on duty. None of the cameras trained on the cell worked. They were all out of it that night. They locked the front of the special housing unit that had eight cells in it, but then they opened all the cells inside. So who was it? So I asked a really simple question, the Bureau of Prisons. Who were the other? So there are eight cells, 16, minus his cell because he was alone. So that means there are 14 other inmates there that night. What are their names? Where'd they go? Some of them are transferred out right after. Who were these people? Can't tell you that. Really? You can't tell me that? Well, on the basis of what? Because some inmate at a federal prison's privacy concerns, like Trump telling, what are you even talking about? Meanwhile, the Attorney General of the United States under Trump, Bill Barr, issues a statement being like, no, you know, it's totally. Bill Barr lied. There's no question that Bill Barr, well, he clearly suspected Epstein was murdered, but stopped the investigation into it. I went and read Bill Barr's book in which he explains all this, and it's like, I have no idea why the Attorney General of the United States would be lying about this, but there's literally no question that he did. I know him. So we, Bill Barr is a super nice guy. We reach out to Bill Barr like, hey, why don't you come on and explain why you lied about Jeffrey Epstein's death? Uh, no. So uh, two things that jump, jump on me there. One is there's obviously been no investigation. And the fact that Barr shut down the investigation is very suspicious to me. What do you think about, about that aspect? I think that Bill Barr was very involved with Iran-Contra, and I think that uh, the Mark Rich pardon that uh, Bill Clinton did plays a role there. I think that Epstein plays a role there. I think that Epstein was protected by the CIA. I think he was an asset utilized by Mossad, CIA, possibly other intelligence services, and his role was having you know planes and yachts and parties and mansions and get important people there get him boozed up, get him around women, and obtain information that can be used to make sure that those people do what you want when you want them to. Right. And I think that's the answer to the question that the host asked Tucker, why doesn't the media cover this? The reason they don't cover it is because it is CIA Mossad. Yes. And that Bill Barr, I don't think Jeffrey Epstein is dead. I think that we haven't and when I say we, I'm saying just in general, we haven't yet run down sufficiently the clues contained in that Ghislaine Maxwell, very bizarre New York Post cover where she's sitting at the In-N-Out Burger that was walking distance from my home in Hollywood. And uh, there are a lot of anomalous things about that. She's reading a book, the CIA Book of Honor or something like that. Now, Jason. Let me stop you for one sec. Which In-N-Out Burger was she at? I thought it was one by Universal. It is. It is. Technically, it's Universal City, but you know, it's near Hollywood. It was Universal City, and it's on Lancashire or something like that. Right, yeah. Right by the 101 there. Right by uh, Ventura Boulevard. Yeah, I went there, and there's security cameras that would have seen her there. The photo of her was retouched. The metadata said it was taken by Leah, somebody I forget what the last name was, but that woman was a lawyer, Ghislaine Maxwell's lawyer. When I found her name, I called her like a day after that photo appeared in the newspaper. Her phone rang. You know when you take a cell phone and you travel outside of the United States and then you call someone on that cell phone. Like if you went to Russia or I don't know, I've never been to Russia. If you went to England and I called your American cell phone while you were in England, it would play the British ringtone when I call it. 
And when I called this lawyer's phone, it played a European ringtone and she didn't answer. When I called her a few days later, it was an American ringtone or North American ringtone. She answered and I said, Leah, how you doing? Did you get back from your overseas trip? And she said, yes. Hi, who's this? And then when I started asking her questions about the photographs, she clammed up and hung up the phone. So what was she doing out of the country days after that bizarre photograph that she took that was placed in the New York Post? And when I called the journalist at the New York Post who wrote it and said, hey, you know, uh, that wasn't taken by a bystander. That was taken by her attorney. They got very nervous and they didn't print a retraction. And I'm very suspicious of the relationship between Rupert Murdoch and Robert Maxwell. And here it is appearing in a Rupert Murdoch newspaper. Maxwell, Ghislaine Maxwell, is reading a book in the photograph called like the CIA Book of Honor or something like that. And if you look up that book on Amazon, she reviewed the book and has a whole review written there that reads to me like a coded message to somebody. And this all sounds like tradecraft to me. And there's a lot of stuff about Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, Bill Barr, the CIA, the FBI, and the Mossad that we just don't know. And that is why Bill Barr doesn't want to investigate this. I think Epstein was exfiltrated from that jail. Some unknown dead guy was stuck on the gurney. And again, the New York Post is the only newspaper to have photographed that. Very suspicious. Well, the whole thing is is very suspicious. And you say tradecraft, but some of it seems like a kind of advanced trolling. Does that make sense, Jason? Like Ghislaine Maxwell was playing a prank, kind of. Yes, but at the same time, she's trying to avoid, at that time, she's trying to avoid going to jail. So I think she's communicating with people. And that's steganographic messaging, encoded messages in plain view. So, you know, that's a form of encryption. There it is. You see it, but you don't know what the message is. And by the way, I've heard that. Tucker mentions in there that Bill Barr's a very nice guy. I've heard the same thing. People who used to hang out at the Trump Hotel would say Barr would come in to bar there. No pun intended. But Barr would come in and hang out at the post office bar, right? And buy drinks and was very nice. And it's conceivable to me. I'm not saying that justifies anything. I'm just saying what I know, because people told me last night at the Trump, Bill Barr was there. It was awesome. I have a feeling, you know, when you when you watch Godfather 2, all the old ladies thought Don Corleone was great because he's buying them flowers and making sure everything, you know, that's a that's a put on. Bill Barr is a horrendous criminal who, in my opinion, who has pardoned some of the people who were involved in Iran-Contra. And I, I read the book as well that Tucker Carlson was talking about, but I read between the lines. And Bill Barr, these books that these guys put out, Lee, are them paving over the narrative, right? He's talking in there about Pan Am 103. Everything he said about that, I believe, is false. Pan Am 103 I believe, was destroyed to take out the Army intelligence officers who were on there who were set to testify about Iran-Contra. And it blew up. Speaking of destroyed, they're trying to destroy the reputation of a woman who they've already destroyed in some significant ways. That's Laura Logan, the reporter who used to call 60 Minutes. Laura Logan was the subject of a hit piece 
in the Atlantic yesterday. Did you see that, Jason? I did not, but I did see some tweets about Laura Logan, so that must have been related. Atlantic Magazine came out with a big piece on Laura Logan saying she'd escaped from reality, and she's basically nuts, according to Atlantic. And again, it's a smear. And I'm going to play a clip from Laura Logan talking about the story she talks about. And what, what I was getting at, you remember that she was sexually assaulted at Tahrir Square in Egypt? Wasn't she like gang raped? I, I don't know exactly what happened. I believe, yes, gang raped by multiple individuals. Right. So let's play a clip of Laura Logan that I saw recently, but it's not recent. But th I think this is why they're trying to destroy Laura Logan, because Laura Logan tells the truth about so many issues in a short space of time. So Laura Logan, let's hear it, Andre. Hit it. This has not gone as well as Vladimir Putin expected. I don't buy it for a second, and I'll be honest with you. I really think that um, there's so much misinformation. We've never really seen anything like it. The Russian military isn't perfect, but Russia is not struggling. It's hard to believe anything that our leaders tell us because they've lied about COVID. They lied about Russia collusion. They lied about the Ukraine impeachment trial. You see dishonesty when it comes to the Azov Battalion. The Azov Battalion has been murdering its way through eastern Ukraine. So, I mean, you can find pictures of them online holding up the NATO flag and the swastika at the same time. This is why Crimea wanted to be with Russia, because sure. Western Ukraine backed the Nazis. The CIA actually gave immunity from prosecution to the Nazis of Ukraine from the Nuremberg trials. These are the actual Nazis from the Second World War, when you know that the CIA sponsored the Killer Revolution in Ukraine in 2013 and 14. This is as much right. interference here as you could possibly imagine. Before right. they were condemned to Hunter Biden, Nancy Pelosi, John Kerry, mm -hmm. and Mitt Romney, and all of their children who are employed in their millions. Ukrainian Zelensky was selected, like so many of our leaders, with big tech and with election fraud these days. We don't know how many leaders all around the world have been yeah. selected for us. Putin has been warning for 15 years that he is not going to stand by, take over the world, build bioweapons facilities. Ukraine has been a center of money laundering for many of the leaders in this country. Billions of U.S. dollars have been laundered through Ukraine, and we say nothing about it. These are our tax dollars and all those corrupt people in the deep state. And you know what? It's not a conspiracy theory. It's an actual deep state. Look at the SES, the Senior Executive Service, because when that bureaucracy was ushered into law in the United States right. of America, that's when we got a bunch of unelected bureaucrats well, pulling the strings behind the scenes. And these are the people that keep lying to us. And that is not a woman who does not know reality. That is a woman who is clearly in reality on Ukraine and Russia. What say you, Jason? Well, that was the clip that I heard on the tweet. And I remember hearing it and thinking, it sounds to me like every single thing she's saying is 100% correct. And is against the narrative. And is obviously, you know, someone who not only understands the facts, and she's saying stuff about the connection to World War II Nazis, and she's exactly right. Yes. And so that's why they want to smear her. It's terrible. And, you know, the Atlantic is just a disaster. It's owned by Lorraine Powell Jobs, Steve Jobs' wife. And, uh, you know, I don't know if the Atlantic Council has anything to do with the Atlantic magazine, but actually, wait a minute, isn't there some photo of, of, of Lorraine Powell Jobs hanging out with... Um, Ghislaine Maxwell on a yacht in bikinis? 
Yeah, I believe so. I'm not sure about that, but I believe so. That rings a bell. I'm looking for it right now. And also, you know, Steve Jobs never got to see that. Yeah, here it is. No, they're not on a yacht. They're in somebody's backyard in bikinis, hanging out, smiling. Very like Ghislaine Maxwell looks like she's laughing, like she's reading a script or something. And Lorraine Powell Jobs is sitting there, body posture toward Maxwell in a very friendly, comfortable way. So what's going on there? Yeah. Now, and so, you know, I'm glad Tucker brought up the Epstein thing because there's nowhere near the amount of coverage that there should be. And you pointed out all the weird stuff, and it is weird stuff, about the In-N-Out Burger photo. Just that could be a miniseries. And they just never answer it. That's the thing, you know, because I always leave in my mind open the possibility, Lee, that, you know what, there could be a complicated explanation that I'm not thinking of. But because people have accused me of weird things, they take evidence, they put it together and they do what's called presenting it in a false light. And if you get a lot of evidence and you concoct a complicated story, you could make it sound plausible to explain, you know, sort of one premise. But then if the person answers right away and says, you know, that's not correct for all these other reasons that make equal or better sense, then you say, oh, okay, that makes sense now. But when they refuse to answer or when they keep coming back to the same answer that you know doesn't make any sense, that to me is a blazing red flag that this person is lying. And Bill Barr and Ghislaine Maxwell and pretty much everything having to do with Epstein has a lot of weird stuff around it like that. Where is Alexander Acosta. Where is that guy? He was labor secretary and then he vanished. But well, what happened was he said on television, somebody asked him some question in a press pool, and he said, Intelligence told me to, you know, lay off of Epstein because he was intelligence. He resigned or was fired or something the next day. And I mean, all these other guys, you know, Andrew Weissman is at NYU and Berman is at some law firm. Where is Acosta? Where is he? And I assume the answer is somewhere, but not in the public eye. Right. Nowhere they want you talking to him. <laughs> He's gone. And so it's very interesting. And the, the stuff I know firsthand on the Epstein thing is that Chuck Johnson, who I've talked about before many times, Chuck Johnson wrote a false story saying Andrew, Prince Andrew, that photo, photo of Prince Andrew, Ghislaine Maxwell, and Virginia Zufri was fake, was a Photoshop job. Chuck wrote and published that article in for, for Andrew, he said. And it makes yeah, sense to me. You and I have looked at that photo, and you and I are both visual effects and digital photography experts. I see no evidence that that's been retouched in any way. And so what that tells me is that why was Chuck working on that? Who's paying him? Was it just Andrew? Well, who's behind it? And if, you know, you can look up Chuck Johnson. He's hated on the in the mainstream media. Chuck Johnson is called a right-wing conspiracy nut and all this stuff, okay? And for sure, he was working on that. So the crossing and double-crossing, the people, you can't say exactly who they work for by just who their enemies are. Does that make sense, Jason? Well, no, absolutely that makes sense. And people need to keep that in mind all the time. Isn't there some kind of connection between Chuck Johnson and Mike Cernovich? There's 100%. And Chuck denied it 
to my face. But at the time, Chuck told me at the Trump Hotel that he was writing everything that came out of Cernovich's mouth. And uh, at the time, there were articles with Chuck and Mike Cernovich praising each other. So I know for sure that Cernovich lied about suing Epstein. And the, the effect that it had is everyone on the right and Breitbart helped Breitbart the publication, not Andrew. Breitbart helped with this. They praised him as the guy who broke the Epstein story. That's absurd. It's yes, not it true. Right. And they never talk about Cernovich's wife, who was one of the founders of Facebook, right? Right. Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, people think they can trust someone. And they see someone like Cernovich, who was pro-Trump and was saying the right stuff about a lot of stories. And they go, okay, so Cernovich is a good guy. No, he's not. And I've tried to warn people about this, but people do not want to hear it. Have you noticed that? Uh, I think Cernovich's popularity, at least I haven't been seeing him come up quite as much. I don't know. Things are shifting a little bit. I mean, you know, we're we're clearly in... The whole kind of, I don't even want to call it presidential politics season, but it's political operative season. That's where we're at right now, and they're going wild. I'll ask you the same question I ask. If anyone listens to the show regularly, I, I gave the answer, I think, yesterday. But do you know how many candidates are currently running for the GOP nomination? Number of candidates. You know what the number is, Jason? Maybe like half a dozen. The actual answer? 13. So ponder that. That's a lot of people, right? Yeah, yeah. If they were donuts, they'd be a full baker's dozen. <laughs> 13 candidates. And of those candidates, exactly one has any chance numerically of winning, right? It's Trump and DeSantis, many points past Trump. And then at the bottom, there's like 11 people with 1%. Yeah, I don't know. And then, you know, Laura was making a big and valid point that um, Ramaswamy was the only GOP candidate who was there supporting Trump, saying, you know, this shouldn't be political. This is this is we, we uh, this is such a disgrace. I think I haven't even absorbed it yet. The fact that Joe Biden has so permanently tarnished this country, its reputation, you know, this is the type of thing that should be done to a president that breaks the law. But unfortunately, there are several presidents that we know and have substantial evidence that would prove that they did that and nothing happened. And instead, the one president that has shown a light on the fact that they are you know, using the FBI and giant media companies to rob us of our First Amendment rights, I mean, it's just so clear. Anyone who says there's no deep state or thinks that this is the way that things should go is either fatally stupid or part of it. So if they did indict Biden, I would say there would be five to 50,000 crack whores outside the courtroom. What do you say, Jason? <laughs> well, you're talking about Hunter Biden. <laughs> I, I, no, I, now the other thing that they've done is they've set the stage for any indictment, any indictment of Biden. They'll simply say, oh, well, this is just you're playing political tit for tat here. That's why they did this. 
I mean, they're blaming Trump for everything that Biden did. You know, the, the real deal in a nutshell is that a bunch of GSA people took stuff from the White House, put it in boxes, drove it to Trump's house. Then the FBI and the National Archives were back and forth with Trump's lawyers. I have a very strong suspicion that he's out like playing golf and talking to people about how he can become president again. I don't think he's sitting there looking through boxes in the downstairs of Mar-a-Lago or wherever that is being stored. This whole thing is nonsense. And, you know, Lee, I am continuing my investigation. Yeah. Let's talk to Floridian law professor and former congressional candidate, Tim Canova. He's online. Let's take a break and we'll talk to Tim right after this on The Backstory. And we are back on the backstory on Truth Tuesday with guest host, co-host Jason Goodman. And we're on the radio on 105.5 FM AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Joining us now, law professor, person from Florida, and also great friend of the show. I, I, I did not want to try Floridian again. So... Tim, how are you doing? Tim Canola. Tim, how are you doing? Doing very well. Thanks for having me on. So, Tim, you're in Ground Zero, Florida. What do you think of the Trump indictment, Tim? Thoughts on that? A really weak indictment. I've printed it out. I've been reading through it. Uh, it seems like they're trying to bootstrap an alleged violation of the Presidential Documents Act and make it into an obstruction of justice. And they're doing it by relying on, uh, well, basically breaching the, the attorney-client privilege and quoting in the indictment uh, one of Trump's lawyers uh, for something that I'm not even quite sure constitutes a crime in any way. Uh, Trump is asking his lawyer for legal advice uh, about a document that may or may not be classified, and they don't really specify what the document is. To me, it seems like a, a very political indictment. I mean, to state the obvious, uh, we had four years of the Trump presidency where uh, the political witch hunt was really done through Congress. There were two impeachments and, and the Mueller investigation. Uh, and we saw during that process that uh, the accused, President Trump, uh, was presumed guilty uh, uh, didn't have the right to really put on a defense before the House Impeachment Committee. Uh, all kinds of due process violations. And now what's changed is the venues moved from uh, Congress to the courts. And we see uh, a Justice Department that's uh, awfully political. Uh, and uh, it really just, I mean, coming right after the Durham report, it, it, it very much highlights the problem with the Department of Justice and the FBI at this point. And I think it's been this way for quite some time. And I, I have firsthand experience of that in my campaign against Debbie Wasserman Shaw. When uh, our campaign came under repeated denial of service attacks, we called the FBI. When Brenda Snipes destroyed every ballot cast, we called the FBI. We're still waiting for the FBI to return those calls. 
Now, Tim, you're not saying this as a big ultra-mega person, are you? Uh, Look, I I will admit it's going to disappoint those who supported me in 2016, but I I, I voted for Donald Trump. Does that make me a MAGA? Uh, uh, You know, I I do believe in nationalism, a healthy kind of nationalism, instead of this uh, rampant globalization. And that was one of the reasons I jumped in the race against Wasserman Schultz, was her stance for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's one of the reasons I supported Bernie Sanders in the 2016 primaries, because he opposed that kind of globalization. And it made it very easy for me to take Trump very seriously. And, and, and I, I, at this point, I do support President Trump. So does that undermine my credibility in uh, criticizing this indictment? That's up to you and your, your, your listeners to decide. Not with me. Not with me, it doesn't. Okay, uh, I appreciate that. Tim, I'll tell you, it's a pleasure to hear someone sensible, informed, and articulate as you are talking about this in the way that you are. Thank you for doing that. I appreciate that. Thanks. I've, I, you know, I've lost a lot of um, friends and supporters over the last few years, but I find it incredible that people cannot have a rational discussion. Their hatred for Donald Trump exceeds all kinds of metrics, their love of country, their, their good sense on medical issues, uh, you know, medical freedom, uh, First Amendment freedoms, uh, everything is trumped by their hatred for Trump. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's almost confusing. So, Tim, what, what do you think is actually behind it? What, what do you think? Is it more psychological factors or people being affected by ideology or people being affected by propaganda? What do you think it is, Tim? I I think it's propaganda more than ideology. You know, I used to proudly call myself a progressive and a liberal, and I still consider myself having very progressive and liberal values. Um, I also, over the years, have considered myself having libertarian and conservative values, depending on the issues. But, you know, something happened in the age of Trump where liberals and progressives were willing to give up their values, where suddenly they're okay with big tech censorship, and big pharma vax mandates. What's progressive and liberal about that? Nothing. Nothing at all. So to me, it's a function of mass propaganda. When there's only a few giant corporations that control 90% of the media, um, our friends and, and loved ones, if they're tuning into that media 24-7, if that's where they're getting their news from, they're getting a very steady stream of Trump hatred, uh, a, a vilification, uh, unreasoned, fact-free kind of vilification. And I, I, I think that kind of mass propaganda has skewed uh, people's uh, opinions in ways that they don't even really quite understand. Let me ask you this, Tim. There's so many people now who have abandoned really probably the most sacred right that is recognized in the Constitution, and that's the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. As a lawyer, can you speak about that and and the collapse of the First Amendment? I mean, we're losing the things that make America unique. I I couldn't agree more, and I teach First Amendment law. And um, to see what's happened uh, with uh, the loss of our freedoms of expression, the kinds of... uh, whether it's cancel culture or it's really in many ways, it's the outsourcing of censorship from the government to, to its big tech cronies, to big corporate cronies. I mean, that's, that's fascism. 
uh, it's what the communists do as well, uh, you know, to just be censoring people based on uh, their their opinions. And, you know, I find it very troubling. You, we, we have our, our Star Spangled Banner ending with the land of the free and the home of the brave. And people are willing to give up these sacred freedoms that generations of Americans fought and died for. Uh, so I, I find it all very troubling. And you're right about the presumption of innocence. And we saw this during the impeachments where, you know, Trump was presumed guilty. Uh, an innocent person, a person accused by the state, uh, state or federal government, law enforcement authorities, called into court on criminal charges, should have this presumption of innocence, as well as should a president who's facing an impeachment. Uh, one should not have to prove their innocence. The, the prosecutors have to prove guilt. Yeah, that's been lost today. People just, you know, they see blood in the water and they're like, yay, indict Trump. They, they, it's turkeys applauding Thanksgiving because they're next, whoever. And by they, I mean anyone. You, you know where I started to see this uh, 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 very troubling development? I think it was in 2018. Uh, I'm, I'm, it was when Justice Kavanaugh was nominated. Okay. I think that's around 2018. Uh, I, I could be off on the year by, by year. I'm not sure. But when Kavanaugh was nominated, I put out a statement. I was a candidate. And I, I put out a statement opposing his, his confirmation. And I did it based on his judicial decisions, which I thought were overly pro-corporate and, and sort of corporate state. It had nothing to do with the allegations of sexual offenses when he was a teenager or something like that. Nothing to do with that. But then that started to blow up. And uh, the Senate scheduled to have hearings where Dr. Blasey Ford was going to testify about Justice Kavanaugh. I had staffers who wanted me to put out a statement um, criticizing Kavanaugh, uh, saying that the nomination should be withdrawn because of his sexual offenses. Now, mind you, I had already opposed him uh, just based on his judicial decisions. You're right. I said, and I, I said, why put out a statement before Dr. Blasey Ford testifies? We don't know what she's going to say. We don't know the truth of the allegations against Kavanaugh. And the response I got from several staffers was, what does it matter if it's true, if it's going to hurt? Wow. Yeah. The ends justify the means. And that's where I realized something's going off the tracks here in this country. We have a nation of psychopaths. People don't care. Um, or they, they are just, they've got so much virtue signaling and moral posturing that they believe the ends justify the means. And as long as they win, that, that by definition is the good guys winning. And I think it does a disservice um, to this country. Uh, you know, uh, we should have been able to have real discussions about foreign policy issues, for instance. Uh, we weren't able to. Uh, we weren't able to have discussions on most issues. It was just get Trump out at all costs. Now, what do you think about the New York indictment? Tim, what do you think about the New York indictment of Trump? That is a bizarre thing, I think. What do you say, Tim? Oh, I agree with you. I mean, what, what's, what's the basis of the indictment? Is that uh, he didn't keep good business records or something like that? They're, they're obviously fishing for a reason, to, and so is this federal indictment, fishing for reasons to stop him from running for president. And have you, have you noticed a lot of people seem to think that Trump's been indicted on rape charges in New York? A lot of people seem to think that. And it's not true. That's not what he was indicted on. Right, Tim? That, that is absolutely correct. That was a civil lawsuit 
that itself, I think, is a travesty because they changed the statute of limitations to allow, you know, a 20-year-old uh, allegation to come into a civil court courthouse. And um, the, the accuser could not even remember what year this occurred. Th- this was a classic, you know, runaway jury. They, they had a jury pool of people in Manhattan uh, that uh, must have been filled with Trump haters. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, of course, is just a civil claim and it's, it's monetary. But I wouldn't be surprised if that gets overturned on appeal. Uh, I've pointed out the Stormy Daniels defamation case about uh, against Donald Trump uh, fell apart uh, in spectacular fashion, where the court ordered Stormy Daniels to pay half a million dollars of his legal fees and then another hundred and twenty two thousand on top of it. So over six hundred thousand dollars of Trump's legal fees. That's a lot of dollar bills in the underwear. (laughs) And and these are desperate attempts to use the law, uh, lawfare, right? to use the law in in a way to restrict our political choices. And I I find that abhorrent in in a country that's supposed to be, you know, um, a Republican uh, Democratic form of government uh, where, you know, uh, elections are supposed to decide um, uh, who who takes office, uh, not legal maneuvering like this. So you've just hit it right on the head, Tim. When When you said lawfare, they really don't care what the outcome is going to be. They've achieved what they've wanted with today. Jason, I was going to ask him that because he, he used the word, he did use the word lawfare. And tr- Trump referred to this indictment as lawfare. Tim, define lawfare for us. How would you define lawfare? I'm sure there are many different definitions. To me, it seems like a use of the legal process to achieve political objectives uh, and to win at all costs, um, even if it means sacrificing uh, long-charged legal protections. And uh, Jason, what are you saying? Well, I would say that in a general sense, it is any kind of weaponization of the legal process. And it can be done through civil law, which I've been experiencing for six years. Or criminal law, as Donald Trump is now experiencing. Obviously, the criminal version is far more extreme because, you know, unscrupulous pro se litigants or low rent lawyers can engage in civil lawfare. Now we've got the Department of Justice, district court judges. It is staggering to understand the scope of uh, the derangement. I mean, if people are uncomfortable with the suggestion that these people are all coordinated in some form of a conspiracy, Okay, but it is staggering to see this happen. And I want to just add, Tim, are you aware of the Lawfare Institute within the Brookings? I I have read several of their emails over the past uh, few years. What's your impression of that? Yeah, well-credentialed, Ivy League-educated lawyers who are openly using the law to try to achieve their political objectives. Abusing the law, I would say. I was about to say, it's a win-at-all-cost. Uh, so I do find it abusive. And, uh, you know, again, I'm sorry to go back to my campaigns, but it is breathtaking when we uncovered mass destruction of the ballots in my race against Wasserman Schultz. We, we from the very get go, I never conceded. We, we had serious doubts about the um, um, the machine count, whether the, the software had been man- manipulated. And there were several circumstantial reasons that I won't go into right now unless, you know, we have time uh, as to why I was skeptical of the final result. We do have time, Tim. Feel free to go into those. The, the day before the election, the local NBC affiliate had up on their website a preview of the next day's elections. And 
no votes have been counted yet. So races for sheriff and city council and county commissioner were all zeroed out. But my race against Washington Schultz, and we took screenshots, had Washington Schultz defeating me by 13 percentage points with 69% of the things reporting. So we took screenshots and we, we called up NBC. They, they took it down and never gave an explanation. And we had a gigantic field operation. I had raised almost $4 million and we had four field offices. Our field numbers showed us running away with it at the end. So the next day, the polls close and an hour later, she's declared the victor by 13 percentage points. So that's the circumstantial uh, uh, qualms I had, you could say, you know, the circumstantial evidence that in my gut, I, I, I had the feeling there might have been some wrongdoing going on. So I did not concede, and I asked to see the paper ballots. I was forced to sue to see the paper ballots. And while the lawsuit was pending and very active in the discovery stage, the supervisor of elections signed an order to have every ballot destroyed, and they destroyed every ballot. Those are felonies and misdemeanors under state and federal law. The, the supervisor of elections, Brenda Snipes, ultimately admitted to the ballot destruction in sworn videotaped deposition testimony. Now, that is smoking gun evidence. There should have been a criminal prosecution. And, uh, you know, what better evidence can you have? Perhaps if we had a videotape of Brenda Snipes with a blowtorch destroying the ballot, but really sworn videotape deposition admission plus the, the, the actual ballot destruction order we, we had. And, you know, we could not get the Republicans in Tallahassee to prosecute. Rick Scott refused to prosecute. Rick Scott did at the very end fire Brenda Snipes. And when Ron DeSantis came in, his first act as governor, many people forget this because it happened so quickly. He reinstated Brenda Snipes. She promptly retired on $135,000 a year pension. Um, we tried to get the Justice Department to bring a prosecution. Uh, I mean, really, a prosecution that any second-year law student could, could prosecute. The evidence was so, so overwhelming. And the acting U.S. attorney, Ben Greenberger, was interested. He flew up to Washington for a week of meetings at the Justice Department with Rod Rosenstein, who was the deputy attorney general who appointed Bob Mueller for that Russia collusion witch hunt. And he came back from his week of meetings in Washington and said they couldn't, they couldn't prosecute it. It was too complicated a case. They're used to prosecuting securities fraud. I'm like, this is a destruction of evidence case. It's about as simple as it gets. So right there, and I, I already mentioned that the FBI did nothing when we came under denial of service attacks. So you have a politicized Justice Department and FBI. They're not just protecting Democrats against Donald Trump. They're protecting establishment incumbents of both parties against grassroots challengers from both parties. And Donald Trump is an outsider to them. He, he, he doesn't play by their rules. His policy agenda is America first. It's against the whole corporate globalization agenda. So he's public enemy number one. You know, I, I'm, I'm down that list of public enemies, but I'm sure I was on the list. Tim, have you seen this December 20th, 2022 report from the DOJ Inspector General about the FBI's national security undercover operations? That's the Horowitz reporting on it, I believe. Uh, 
the Inspector General Horowitz, yeah, uh, the FBI lied to get FISA warrant. Well, no, this is a different report. This is December 20th, 2022, specifically talking about their use of undercover operations. And I think it was prompted by testimony that came out at the Whitmer kidnapping trial. There were at least two undercover FBI agents who testified about the use of online OC, uh, UCOs and unqualified people to do all these things that seem pretty illegal. I, I have not read that report. I've read accounts of that report. And of I'll course, send it to you. I, I'd appreciate that. I'd love to read it. And uh, of course, the FBI uh, has pretty much admitted to doing much the same uh, on January 6th, uh, 2020. Right, exactly. And because, Tim, you've had so much experience with him. So what are your thoughts on Ron DeSantis, Tim Canova? Uh, I voted for him twice. Uh, the first time I voted for him, uh, I was a, a last-moment conversion. Uh, I had uh, grown dissatisfied with Andrew Gillum uh, campaigning openly with Wasserman Schultz. Um, and I was impressed that DeSantis was taking on Big Sugar and uh, talking about the, the water pollution problems um, in Florida. So I voted for him, and I voted for him again. Uh, you know, the choice between him and Charlie Crist, um, uh, you know, I'm glad we had Governor DeSantis. I think the shutdowns would have been far worse in Florida had we had Andrew Gillum or Charlie Crist as a governor. But uh, we did have shutdowns in Florida, and he, uh, DeSantis did wait an awfully long time to sign legislation to protect Floridians from private employer vaccine mandates. He waited until November of 2021 to, to sign that kind of legislation. And in the intervening six months, an awful lot of thousands of Floridians got vaccinated who did not want to get vaccinated. They were coerced into doing so. It turns out that Ron DeSantis takes a lot of money from big pharma and all the other big corporate interests. So, you know, he's very satisfying on a lot of the culture wars. And um, it's very easy to uh, appreciate him, again, compared to Florida Democrats. But I don't think he's ready for the job of uh, president of the United States and commander in chief. Um, I think uh, Trump is ready for that uh, job. And I think we would have had um, a much different last three years if um, Trump was in the White House and not Joe Biden. Uh, you take a look at what Biden's just done in foreign policy. Um, the war in Ukraine has uh, divided um, uh, us from many of our allies and trading partners. Forty-one countries are now members of BRICS. The, uh, uh, BRICS is uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Forty-one countries now. And they say another 40 countries are lined up. They don't want to use the dollar anymore. So we now have painted ourselves into a corner. If the dollar ends up falling and not being used as the reserve and transactional currency of the world, we're going to have a lot of economic and financial problems. And I think we're beginning to sort of get a taste of it with the banking crisis that, that became visible a few months ago, uh, where the banking system, including the Federal Reserve, are sitting on trillions of dollars of unrealized losses at this point. Uh, so, yeah, and that's just one issue, foreign policy. Okay. I, I, I think Ukraine would be far different if, if Trump was in office. I think there would have been a deal there wouldn't be a war going on. And that's just one issue. Now, Tim, on paper, RFK Jr. seems like he should be your candidate, I, I would say. What are your thoughts on RFK Jr. running for president in 2024? I'm glad he's running. I, I, I do like RFK Jr. Uh, I did notice 
um, that a poll, uh, a very reputable poll came out a, a month ago or so, uh, finding that one out of five Democrats would support a Trump RFK Jr. ticket over Biden-Harris. Now, I, I'm not a Democrat anymore. I'm, I'm actually an independent. Um, and, and I would like to see that kind of a fusion occur. Uh, I think uh, I was a lifelong Democrat. And the reason I was a Democrat from growing up until just a few years ago was because I associated with the party of John Kennedy. John Kennedy was a, a, an anti-communist, liberal, progressive. He had many conservative values, too. I mean, like I said, nobody it's easy to try to pin somebody sort of as a cartoon character. Um, life is and, and the issues are more complicated than that. But the Democratic Party today is not the John Kennedy Democratic Party anymore. It's woke. It's all for transgender ideology and, and, and culture wars and, um, and rigging elections. Uh, I, I'm sorry to go back to it, but uh, I, I don't think they could have the kind of unpopular stances they do on so many issues um, if they weren't rigging elections. Now, you mentioned transgender. And Jason, did you hear the headline today that the transgender activists who went topless at the White House, the White House has condemned that. Did you see that story, Jason? I saw that story, too. I saw a photograph of one of the transgender uh, activists uh, standing next to President Biden. So uh, perhaps uh, they had to then follow it up with denouncing it. But uh, they did make it happen, didn't they? <laughs> so is it wrong to say about a transgender person, nice rack? Is that wrong to say? Probably in this day and age, it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> who knows? Uh, who, who, who would have thought that a, a guy showing his boobs on the lawn of the White House would be a controversy in politics ever? It's insane. Right. Is it not? Well, it was, what it was is it was a male to female activist. So presenting as a woman showing breast implants and then a female to male activist presenting as a man, posing, flexing with a hairy chest and double mastectomy. And, and while our schools K-12 are teaching our children the nuances of this transgender ideology, in China, the children are actually learning useful subjects yeah. that will make them STEM. more competitive in a global economy and militarily as well. You say that, but I did not see any Chinese people topless on the lawn of the White House. So we win. USA, USA, USA. You got me there. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm teaching at a university and, uh, you know, I have been for, for many years. Uh, I've been a law professor and to see what's happened uh, at the university level is also troubling, uh, you know, and it is a matter of sort of uh, political correctness and virtue signaling. I see more and more colleagues, uh, not just at my school, but at, at all across the country, uh, signing their emails with uh, the the pronouns. Yeah. I, you know what? I was looking for an attorney. And one of the first questions they asked me on the questionnaire was, what are your pronouns? And I said, I don't think you're the right law firm for me. <laughs> yeah, it's a good call. And the ESG scores, The what do you think of those, Tim? The ESG scores some corporations are adopting now. I'm very critical of it. You know, I, I used to be very supportive of the idea of stakeholder capitalism, that a board of directors should be able to actually look out for diverse constituencies, meaning their own rank and file workers, the local communities, things like that, the environment. Uh, 
But this is not really stakeholder capitalism. It's being pushed by some of the largest shareholding interests in the world, mainly BlackRock and Vanguard. So they're pushing it for a reason. And this is part of this globalization agenda. They want to destroy the United States. They want to destroy the institutions that made this country great, the schools, the family. This is a very centralized uh, agenda. Kim, we're out of time. A hard break here at the end of the show. Tell people where they can find yourself, Kim. Well, they can just go online and, and do a search, a Google search for me or any DuckDuckGo, whatever, Brave search. And um, they'll, they'll find my, my faculty bio. I, I teach at Nova Southeastern University at the law school. Uh, and they can uh, contact me through there. Uh, uh, that's probably the, the, the fastest and easiest way at this point. Great conversation, Kim. But we are out of time. So, Kim Canova, Karen Hunt, great guest today. Thank you, Jason Goodman. Great co-hosting. We'll see you tomorrow. We got more for you on the backstory.